welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Artificial Intelligence, I for one welcome the new robot overlords. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Ball Fondlers. Get into the action, ride the mayhem with this summer's next great tentpole release. Go see Ball Fondlers in a theater near you. <laughs> Welcome to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And I am Joe. And this is a show where we like to break down, pick apart films, and act a little ridiculous from time to time. <laughs> and I am calling in from New Zealand on the opposite side of the world. Normally, I'm in Austin, Texas, which is where Todd is residing right now. I'm actually calling in. True. Yep. True. True. <laughs> I'm the one phoning it in today. Heck yeah. And I'm staying at the incredible Joe Houses place, who is joining us today as well. And hopefully you listened last week and heard all his brilliant insights into Birdman. If not, go watch Birdman. Go listen to Birdman. (laughs) It was one of my favorite episodes, really. It really was. That was a good talk. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody was just bringing the fire. It was freaking amazing. (laughs) God. Even when I was editing, I was like, oh, man, I forgot how much good stuff there is. And I think any time that we can get so much interesting perspective packed into, I think we were just over 60 minutes, which I was really impressed with. Yeah, no, yeah. it felt longer. Yeah, it really did. Yeah. Absolutely. Hopefully today we bring the gunfire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because today we're going to be doing Die Hard. Woo. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> and there are spoilers galore for all of you who haven't seen it. I guess there's all, all five of you who haven't seen this movie. <laughs> no, really. Like I, I know there's, there's pr- probably plenty of younger people who haven't seen this movie. So if you haven't seen it, make sure to go watch it, pause this, go watch it and then come back. Cause we're going to be talking about all the nitty gritty of Die Hard today. Heck yeah. We're going to talk about a little bit about cinematography, but I want to really dive into like story and maybe a little bit of theme, I guess, but uh, really is Die Hard the greatest action movie of all time. And <laughs> We definitely will tackle that and other such stuff and things and stuff. So uh, let's dive in quickly to a synopsis of the film. An NYPD officer tries to save his wife and several others taken hostage by German terrorists during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. It's directed by John McTiernan. Screenplay by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. Souza, uh, based on the novel by Roderick Thorpe and starring Bruce Willis as John McClane, Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber, Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro McClane, Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell, Paul Gleason as Deputy Chief of Police Dwayne T. Robinson, Alexander Gudanov as Carl, Clarence Gilliard at, Jr. as Theo, and Devereaux White as Argyle. I thought I told all of you I want radio silence until further... I'm very sorry, Hans. I didn't get that message. Maybe you should have put it on the bulletin board. I figured since I waxed Tony and Marco and his friend here, I figured you and Carl and Franco might be a little lonely, so I wanted to give you a call. How does he know so much about this? This is very kind of you. I assume you are our mysterious party crasher. You are most troublesome. For a security guard. Sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Oh, these are very bad for you. 
Who are you, then? Just a fly in the ointment, Hans. The monkey in the wrench. A pain in the ass. Check on all the others. Don't use the radio. See if he's lying about Marco and find out if anyone else is missing. Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open the front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. How good is Alan Rickman as like a great bad guy? Well, and he's an example of like you you could have just cast any villain in L.A. back then and given them this dialogue, they would have been fine. But man, does Rickman ever take this role? My God, what he brings to roles. To, and it's there's training, obviously, but there's just something about Alan Rickman, the man that he brings to a role yeah, that's just incredible. He pours himself into it. So yeah. how long has it been since you've seen this, Todd? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know, 20 years. Wow. <laughs> it's been a long time, uh, long enough to where I couldn't really remember all the like little specific details and stuff. Um, so watching it again was was lovely. It was like watching it for the first time, really. Um it's very 80s. I don't remember it being so 80s, you know? Uh, so when I'm walking, I'm like, okay, all right, just let that go. Let that go. Let, I had a lot, let a lot go. Um, what were the things that you're like, oh, that's a really big 80s thing? What everyone's wearing, their hair. <laughs> um, and they're not actually speaking German. It's pretty obvious. They're just like gibberishing. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty obvious, even though I'm not, I don't speak fluent German. It's like, yeah and not that that's 80s but that was like really off-putting and uh oh just a lot of the things that like the, the interactions with the cops you know where it was just very much like like we got this now we got this now you can you can go away you know the fbi is here we've got this you can go you know that kind of thing or like all it, it was very stereotypical and i think that but i also think that it was easy to let go because it was stereotypical because of die hard because everything else after that started doing it all those things uh yeah but it was it was really enjoyable it was it was good it was it's obviously a good fun christmas movie you know the good guy wins everybody's happy in the end is it was it was enjoyable so, but yeah it's been a while it kind of held up for me and kind of didn't i'm mm. i'm not I don't know. Maybe I'm spoiled by, you know, the great action movies that we have nowadays. But I guess back then that was like that was pretty avant garde for its time. It's pretty aggressive for its time. So I chose to look at it like a period piece almost, you know, I think one of the things that mires this in the 80s is I think one of the themes is about keeping a marriage together when the woman is working. You know, the women uh, were, were engaging in careers more and more and more late 70s and in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And there's there was a whole bunch, if I remember correctly, there's a whole bunch of cop movies 
where it's just the cop's marriage is is just dead and it's because he's working all the time and he's in the line of fire and she's working and the kids are not happy and so there there was that there's also this really interesting uh thing where it it, it plays into the american appreciation of the the common wisdom against authority uh which i think plays into the healthy american distrust of the government and it's so great when uh, when Gleason comes in playing the exact same character he does in the Breakfast Club. He's the authority, but yeah. he's kind of a buffoon. And John McClane's wisdom in in this film is so cleverly done. And it's you're just with them the whole time. You're with the yeah man. Screw the authorities. Screw the police chief. This guy knows what's going on, and they're just this machine on top that doesn't really understand the wisdom on the ground. And it makes fun of that and plays into it. And I think that really draws you in. And there was a lot of that in the 80s, too. Rambo did that as well, that, you know, you'll, you have no idea what, I, what happened to me on the ground. So even though this is kind of lighthearted and comedic, it plays into a, into a very real uh, part of, I think, the American spirit that just makes this so enjoyable and makes McLean so admirable. You just love him. That's a really good point. I always forget about the the context of when this came out with, like you said, uh, women's role in the house was changing from being having a role in the house. <laughs> like They were just kind of getting, you know, the feminist movement was certainly producing results at this point where yeah. women were having full-time careers and she moved her family out to LA from New York and he stayed back because of, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York cop and this is what I do. And, you know, there's that chip on his shoulder that I'm not going to let, you know, my <laughs> wife kind of run things. Oh no, actually she's doing really well and I have to deal with this now. Yeah. Uh, women commonly getting jobs where she's a businessman now and she mm-hmm. makes up more money than John does. So at that time, you know, flipping that, the male uh, role model on its head. Yeah, and I guess at the same time it gave him an avenue to show his man, his macho side. You yep. know, now that we're in a crisis, um, I get to kind of put the pants back on a little bit and uh, do what I do really well. You're doing what you're doing really well, but this is what I do. Yeah, it's kind of redemption for the male role in the modern nuclear family of the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah. No, that's I. I hadn't never really considered that aspect of it before. I always tune into this like, oh, I'm going to get a great action movie and Bruce Willis is going to give me a couple smooth one-liners and then kill a bunch of motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be cake. But it, it goes to show if you've got a strong theme underpinning, even just kind of a action movie, mm-hmm. it makes the action movie so much uh, better and richer. Absolutely. Like, if, yeah, if you can't start with the basic layer of a nice theme, uh, then – it's going to be hollow at the end of the day. I mean, we watched a movie recently where I was like, oh, that was really good. But the theme was very just kind of tacked on instead of built right. around. Right. And here it seems like they're definitely trying to build around the theme. And so you feel like modern action movies today are more – they're giving you more bang for your buck? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, well, not not always. I mean, if we're t- not if we're talking about Transformers, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's pretty surface level. Um, but you, I don't I don't know that they're giving you more bang for your buck. I think that I, I like the underpinning storylines and and you know like the um, what you guys are talking about. I totally felt you know addressing the woman's 
you know, women's new roles, uh, new role, uh, you know, in the office and, and not just in the house. I love, you know, addressing that. And I don't think it's, no, I don't, I don't necessarily think that I just, it just didn't age as well as I had hoped that it would in my eyes, in my, you know, like humble opinion. But then again, it's not a staple in my house to watch it every single year. Like it is <laughs> with a lot of people where they just, it's not Christmas unless you watch Die Hard. Yeah. And if that's the case, then you know exactly what you're getting and what you're expecting. And it's not like a, a new, a new thing when you get that. Yeah. And I think this is like, for me, the best Christmas movie ever, <laughs> because I really do think it is a Christmas movie. I mean, there's plenty of music and reference and it's built around it. And in the end, Christmas even saves the day with the, uh, the packing tape. Like that was the reason why he was able to win and uh, save his wife and, and kill Hans and whoever Hans's last sidekick was. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love the, at the end, it, it, it was kind of a nod to the end of uh, It's a Wonderful Life where there's embracing, but instead of snow, it's bearer bonds <laughs> oh, yeah. falling on the ground around them. It's just so friggin' So good. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so good. That's awesome. <laughs> so, let, I mean, I, I don't know about best ever. Best ever? Really? Maybe yeah. best action. The best action Christmas movie or just best Christmas movie ever? Throw out whatever you think would be the best Christmas movies, and I'll tell you whether or not I objectively <laughs> like Die Hard more <laughs> as a Christmas movie. Okay, okay, but you you can't judge it on how many how much bloodshed and shed and bullets are thrown because none of these are going to have any of those. Oh, okay, they already sound terrible. Yeah. You're already losing. I know, right? They're already boring. Elf. Oh God, no! Get no, no. Okay, okay. Christmas Story. That would be the closest one and still no. Like I have never been – I don't know if it was just watched too much in my house or if I never connected with those characters whatsoever. But I I love so much more the idea of John McClane bringing gifts than Ralphie getting his, his own poor version of a gun. <laughs> it couldn't even okay. put his eye out. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Uh, all right. Uh, how the Grinch Stole Christmas. Ooh, now you're touching on a good one. That's a pretty good one. Dang. Any version you want, whether that's Jim Carrey live action or the animated. It definitely would not be Jim Carrey's, but yeah. the, over the animation, yeah, I still like Die Hard better as a Christmas movie, but as a Christmas movie. <laughs> really? Okay. No. Hey, I'm. I'm not. I'm, Okay, Whatever. well, I'll tell you what. Let me get through my shtick, and we'll see yeah. if if any of I, this. I, I, wanted to, I just wanted to make you question it just for a second. <laughs> I'm not trying to change your mind. Just, yeah, Definitely mission accomplished. I was like, oh, that is a good one. Yep. So diving into kind of the story elements. For one, on a superficial level, I love how they use names in this. For At, at the most basic level, John, Jack is always a strong name. I can't tell you how many action films use John or Jack as their leading man's name. 
Um, and that's just because it's a strong name. It's kind of like when you, people use the F-bomb, it's like, oh, you have a soft start and a really hard finish. Like it's just the perfect curse word. John and Jack are kind of that for, for names as an action film. It's like it's this perfect, eloquent, strong, sturdy name that you're always going to get out of an action hero. And you could probably look at the top 100 action films. I bet half of them have John or Jack as their name. And then continue, continuing that, Holly is his wife. Holly is also a Christmas-themed name, right? Sergeant Al Powell, formerly Fam- Family Matters uh, guy. Sergeant Powell, I love his name just because it's kind of a shorthand for Powell. Every time he's saying Powell, you're thinking Powell. And it just kind of blends seamlessly in together. This is my sidekick. This is my buddy. This I totally thought that yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's he awesome. was saying Powell, wasn't he? Yeah, it's like... Perfect. And of course, his first name is Al. So, you know, pal, it's all, it's all just playing seamlessly into that. And my favorite naming convention they use in this is actually not Hans Gruber. That's a great villain name, but I don't see any like tie into anything other than that's just a really good evil name. But my favorite name are, are the FBI agents who are both named Johnson because they're pricks. But less useful than a prick. (laughs) And even there's a joke uh, in there where someone calls him a dickhead. And it's perfect because in terms of pecking order, authority-wise in this film, they are the head. And they're both Johnsons, so they are both technically dickheads. Um, And that's just a great, great, simple naming convention. It's like, Johnson, no, the other Johnson. It's just... I love it. They're just kind of wasting like, eh, all these guys are relevant. They're pricks. Get them out of here. That's awesome. I love all the uh, story-wise. There's exposition and setup where there's never wasting a moment. Like even when we meet the schmo on the airplane, he's setting up why John takes off his shoes, which is, of course, going to put him in a predicament. But it also reveals that he's a cop, right? He stands up and he reveals his gun and the guy gets a little afraid. And John immediately does a callback to... I'm a cop. Been doing that 11 years because this guy's like, I've been a sales guy for nine years. And he's like, I'm a cop. I'm even more experienced than you. And so there's always utilization of every character that we're introduced to. They're always trying to use them to reveal story, reveal character, and just uh, effortlessly, seamlessly kind of give you exposition about who we're dealing with. Just like Argyle, same thing, um, except he ends up playing a part in the film. The schmo only ends up hurting John instead of helping him. Um, Argyle, on the other hand, is used to set up John's goal and motivation for flying in at all. Right, John, we find out he just kind of keeps pricking and prodding him, and John eventually let, relents. And it also gives you an opportunity to see this guy. He's not one for small talk. He's super cool, but he's also cool enough to like, okay, I'll win. I'll play along, you know, I'll be relatable. And we find out he's trying to get his wife back. And he's also underestimated his wife along the way. He's relatable, right? John doesn't sit in the back of the limo. Yuck, yuck. He's one of us. And instead, he's riding up there with the, with the driver. But this now goes into my favorite stuff about Die Hard, which is that we have smart villains. We have a smart hero. But I think, by and large, we have smarter villains, right? Hero has a really good idea. John has a great idea. Oh, I'm going to pull the fire alarm. I'm going to get the cops here. Well, the villain's already outfought him. He's like, no, 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 you know, call 911. 
and defuse the situation. Okay, well, done. And when John's hiding in the air shaft, Carl starts testing the shaft for weight. And they kind of outsmart themselves there. Like, no, let's get on, get back to our mission. They shoot the glass and cripple John along the way. And Hans, and whenever John finally does find him and he gets him, he's just vamping for time while his team gets to him. Like every step of the way, he's constantly being presented with fresh ideas and obstacles and issues and story that's making him dig deeper and making us uh, find a hero to root for, right? John is, he's, he's likable. He goes out of his way to screw with them. Like you send a dead man message on an elevator just to dick with your, your opponent. And I feel like he, in doing so, he's kind of, he, there's a motivation not just to be a dick and, you know, to be an interesting character, but it's also seeming to let me take away from maybe the hostages. Let me maybe try to make them focus on me instead of having all those guys down there. Cause I don't know, bad guys with guns holding all these hostages. Let me try to pull them away. And now I can start to deal with them. Maybe. I don't know. I feel like also that. Every well, I'll get into that in a second. John doesn't catch a lot of breaks. This makes us a really great way to make us root for him because he never gets anything go his way. Right, whenever he's trying to climb down the elevator shaft with his little gun trick, that breaks. Like that's that could have been an easy way for the the screenwriter to be like, oh, look how clever he is, and we like him for that. No, he's clever and it doesn't work. <laughs> that makes you like him so much more whenever he, his own good ideas turn out to be kind of bad ideas. <laughs> he's in bare feet in a live fire situation. Like they they take him out by shooting the glass. <laughs> that's brilliant. I love that. It's yeah. so good. I love. Uh, yeah, they cut his feet up. The fire hose breaks when he has his amazing jump. And that still doesn't go right. It like gets him just enough out of a situation to create another situation. <laughs> and so they're just constantly throwing obstacles. But John never gets rattled or down in the mouth, right? Every challenge he meets with sarcasm and it makes him so much easier to root for instead of just kind of bitching and moaning the whole time. It's like, oh, you know, let me crack a, you know, TV dinner joke or whatever. <laughs> And also, it also makes it easy to root for him whenever he's also, he's not just fighting against the villains, he's fighting against the, the, the good guys too. He's fighting against incompetence, right? The bosses, the media, his own friends. Ellis is, you know, trying to help him out and screwing him up. He's fighting against everyone except, um, maybe his wife and Sergeant Powell. <laughs> like, that's it. That's all he's got going for him. But I also love that we have an assembled team of villains. This isn't a faceless, endless supply of cannon fodder. Each villain has their own style, their voice, and function on their team. They're human. And to me, they come across a lot like levels in a video game. Every single one of them has their own particular things and a way of addressing them. Uh, and uh, they all have relationships with one another too. They're, and that adds a little bit of humanity to them and also makes them important so that whenever he's facing them, you feel like you know them and it gives them a little bit more gravity and weight to that fight. You're like, oh, this guy's bringing something to it instead of, oh, we have a guy who may as well just be wearing a helmet that's covering up his face. Instead, we have, oh, we have a particular bad 80s hairstyle or uh, outfit and a voice and some kind of personality. And it just adds so much more weight to their fight because now they're fight. John McClane is fighting somebody. He's not just 
Eh, he's fighting someone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, he even writes their names on his arm or his hand or whatever it is so, so that he keeps track of them. Yeah. And they're, you, they're important to him. And you know what he's doing there, don't you? He's making a list and checking it twice. <laughs> God, oh, that's God. a freaking Christmas God. thing. He's freaking uh, Santa Claus, bro. I, does, doesn't he? Doesn't he address that too? I think he like actually mentioned something like that. I don't that. remember if he did. Yeah. But God, I hope so. <laughs> it's perfect. It's a Christmas movie. Okay, I'm going on. <laughs> there's also love story wise that there's multiple storylines with arcs and everyone's playing the part. Um, so that you never just get caught up in one thing. We can cut away to something else and allow John time to scramble to another floor or what have you. But you have all these storylines playing throughout John and Holly, which is, by the way, the number one goal of John isn't dealing with these terrorists. It's getting back with his wife. The terrorists are an obstacle to his real goal. That's such a great writing tool because any other action film would just say, oh, there's a bad guy or a building full of bad guys and our good guy has to deal with them wants to deal with them this is his end all be all instead actually john is constantly running away from these guys and every time he has to kill them it's because they backed him into a corner to do so he's never really seeking out the action in this movie but you also storyline wise you also have powell overcoming his demons right um which is an interesting thread in this movie and you know contemporarily that he killed a kid he killed a kid an unarmed kid yep and i guess the one thing you know modern day wise that i really like about that is it is a demon it is something he's struggling with and he's not happy about it he's not uh, he's not champion championing his decision making he feels like i made the wrong call it was the call that i made and i'm having to deal this that's kind of the impression i get in any way but maybe that's just me inserting my own you know convictions into the to the thing but i love that you know there's a little bit of guilt and hesitation on bringing his gun back out but we get a satisfactory way of him making that right call there is someone with a gun and he does deal with it so you have a really strong arc that plays right into like oh the story's over it's the the bad guy's down for the count no he's not he's got one more bullet and in this case we had one more bad guy that we thought was dealt with and it was carl which is such a bad villain name carl that's the least threatening name you can come up with oh my god it's carl <laughs> but they gave it a k so it's like carl yeah i don't know i guess but y'all very german it's super german yeah and you also have John and Hans kind of developing a relationship throughout the film. Um, Holly seems to have her own thread of, hey, I'm trying to contribute and help, you know, deal with the hostages in my own way. You have the news anchor thread that is just perfectly punched in the face because, like, the news seems to ruin a lot, you know, modern day wise. And here they're just making life way more difficult to John than it needs to be. And, and even worse for Holly, who was just trying to, you know, help everyone live and suddenly the news media is just ruining her life you have argyle uh his thread is kind of hilarious in the basement he's just having a party before he realizes oh some you know bad shit's going down right now but writing wise i also love that they seem to address every argument instead of ignoring issues along the way for the sake of putting the character in a predicament for instance if you know whenever we're watching movies we 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 constantly ask this question, what would I do if that were me? 
And most of us say, oh, well, I would call the cops, call 911. Um, I would want to see, I would say, hey, get the SWAT team in there. If I'm, you know, Dwayne T. Johnson, I'm like, no, just send in the badasses, you know. No, well, if that's not going to work, I am going to call the FBI. You're always saying what would be the best solution to throw at these guys, and that makes the smart villains work so much better because they already thought about that. And most movies, I feel like they do this, and we were talking about this the other day, Joe, where so many movies will just kind of not address an issue for the sake of having tension. Like, oh, she knows that her husband slept with a dude, but she's not going to address it. Why? Address it. Let's see what comes out of that, what new drama can unfold. But lazy screenwriters tend to just say, well, she's not going to say anything. For the, And now there's tension between them. And yeah, they manufacture the tension instead of earning it. Yeah. yeah. And here they earn it because they're constantly saying, our hero's doing the right thing. He's being forced to be an action hero. And we love him so much more for that. And we buy into his se- uh, the suspension of disbelief so much more because of that. And I love uh, also <laughs> there's memorable kills like in terms of action films. This I feel like is the perfect action movie because all the kills are memorable for the most part. There might be one or two really quick kills that are just segueing into other cooler kills. But like you have the uh, quips paired with a good you know gunfight. No more table. And he, you know, he shoots something like, thanks for the advice, pal. <laughs> and then you have the, uh, uh, even the Santa Claus guy. Okay, fine. He fell down the stairway. Maybe that's not a super cool way, but it also is a grounded way of presenting the action so that we don't have to make this some unbelievable thing. We're constantly buying in because I feel like all the action is grounded. All the kills are grounded. You have exploding knees as this guy's running across before he gets, falls face first in the glass. <laughs> That's brutal yeah. and memorable. And I love all the action seems to be really well earned and makes you buy much more into the scene and scenario. I also love uh, finalizing like my love of the action and perfect movie that this is. They don't just leave you with that. Like, yeah, okay, we got all this cool grounded stuff, but you know what? We'll give you some cool explosions too. Like, we have the C four elevator drop with all those freaking the explosions. I think still stand up to me. Like the the flashing bombs as the C four is detonating. You have all these crazy flashes going through the windows. That's freaking amazing, and that to me still looks badass. If I could do that today. I would still use those effects. Like I think they're just freaking awesome. And of course, the single most iconic moment of the movie, building top exploding with John McClane jumping off the roof. It's a badass shot. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Willis doesn't look like an action hero by any modern standards. I think that's what modern action films get wrong. They make everyone with a six pack and you know shoulders that you could uh, lift Atlas on. Like everyone looks so insanely actiony. And John McClane, no, he's a beat cop. Guess what? Beat cops have maybe a little bit of pudge, and they're just dealing with life. Yeah, they, yeah, they have donuts. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, they're sure of donuts. <laughs> hey, hey, I want to float something out to you. Explosion at the top of Nakatomi Plaza. Is that the star on the Christmas tree? Ooh. <laughs> Christmas movie. Christmas freaking movie. Uh, 
Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one, Joe. I didn't. I never. I never saw that. Hold on, let me look at the poster. Oh, that is a Christmas tree. Yeah. The building is. I'm a looking Christmas at the poster right now. It looks like a Christmas tree. All the flashing explosions are ornaments. Dude. Ornaments. Yeah. Freaking Christmas movie all time. All right. All right. That is pretty badass. And yes, those explosions, man. They, they absolutely pulled up. It was very, <laughs> I was, I had to turn it down because, you know, kids were sleeping and stuff. I was <laughs> like, wow, this, and it's mixed really well. It's like, you know, there's quiet and then there's, it's really, really loud and really aggressive and realistic. And yes, when that guy falls in the glass, like that, even if it's faux glass, yeah. like that looked like it really hurt, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I love your points about him not being, you know, the typical, um, action hero guy. I mean, they originally thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone this, for this role. It was supposed to be a follow-up for Commando, and it's now rushed out as, as that, and so those guys passed on it. And even, I think, like, other other people, like Richard Gere even, were up for it, but it went through a bunch of people before it passed to Bruce. And it's so good that it did, because would, would Clint Eastwood have been good in this role? Sure. He would have killed it, but he wouldn't have had, like, the, smart the comedic aspect yep to that bruce brought to this you know mm-hmm. like even even in the yippee kaye motherfucker line like there's humor in that you know you're like like and only what i feel like only bruce could have delivered it in the way that he, you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's perfect so my last super quick notes is about cinematography. I love hate how they constantly shoot light through the blinds. They always have the, the, the blind shadows to kind of reinforce us that this is in an office building and reality. I'm sure it was a set in, you know, West LA or something, but I also love hate love because I feel like this kind of established the whole constant camera movement adding grandiosity and spectacle. This is Bayhem before Michael Bayhem. Like, I feel like this is where he stole a lot of his chops and, and ideology of we're just going to constantly move the camera. Except here, they, they do it like 80% of the time, but they also know how to set the camera down. And we're going to pause on John McClane in the shaft while he delivers a line instead of, I feel like Michael Bay would have just pushed in for a dramatic laugh. And I'm like, all right, let's calm down. <laughs> and so... <laughs> The uh, last little cinematography note is the conversation between John and Hans. There's a lot of uplighting, which is perfect because that's monster lighting, particularly on Hans. It's harsh and it tells the story, even though Bill Clay, quote unquote, is lying about his identity. The light, the scene is revealing the truth. This is a monster in front of you and you can't trust them, of course. We already know John McClane knew who he was, but there's still that error air of question. Like he saw him from the top. Did he really recognize him? Did he get a good look at his face? Cause now he's kind of changed his voice and I'm sorry, but Alan Rickman is doing the worst American accent <laughs> in the world, which maybe is on intentional because he's, he's not American in the movie, of course. Yeah. So there's this beautiful lighting that's kind of revealing the story. Even, even as the character himself is lying. Yeah. So that's my my two questions. For one, Takagi dies. Yeah. I don't know. And why do you think he sacrificed himself? Was it his love of the art that was in there? Or beyond storytelling reasons, I 
I would never die for over someone else's money. <laughs> like uh, that that bothers me a lot. But I feel like maybe because there's art in there, like there's a Degas painting in the in the vault. Like I don't know if y'all noticed, there's a little painting with all these ballerinas, and that's I'm pretty sure they're saying that Degas has some some artwork in this vault, and there's a lot of precious artwork in there that we find out later. And I think they lightly touch on in the Hans versus Takagi uh, conversation, but I I don't know, or maybe earlier in that when John and uh, Takagi are having their conversation, but I just I. I would never personally die over, and I love heist movies that they walk in. This money is all insured. This isn't your money. We're taking the government's money. Sit down, shut up, and we'll be out of your hair in five minutes. But Takagi dies. I don't like that sacrifice, personally, even though it sets up a good, smart villain issue later on. And I wonder if, uh, at that point, did Takagi really believe that they were just terrorists, so Mm -hmm. they weren't going to... You know, they were going to want to negotiate. They were going to do all. They were going to go through that whole rigmarole. He was testing their resolve. Exactly. Yeah. Let's see. Well, what? How is this going to play out? That's true. Try because to be smart about I it. guess he's Hans has complimented his suit, and he they, he seems affable enough. He hasn't seen anybody die. He seems intelligent. Well, I can reason with this guy. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe Takagi's just a really bad reader of men. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I remember when I saw it, I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it like on video or something like a, a year later. And I that that execution shocked me back then. I don't know if it was because, you know, I was much younger than I am now and I hadn't seen that kind of violence like right in the middle of what just seems like kind of a low key uh, uh, scene. But uh, but it works, too, because not only did he put his smarts on the on the mirror, on the glass, but he also uses uh mctiernan uh, i feel like uses that as a visual marker for later in the film when john mcclain ends up back in that room and now we have a, a geographical understanding of where john is uh, in relation to the rest of the uh, the the crew and the and the party and whatnot yeah, he's, oh he's gotten back down close to them yeah you know that yep. yeah that's a pretty smart you know uh filmmaking thing i guess to do yeah to help orient your audience and my other question was Joe, as a tech guy, what did you, what did you think of the uh, the computer tech? Well, it's funny. I noticed that that back then, like, what 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 are we trying to tell the audience? This is like a super fancy, futuristic, lockdown, impenetrable building. Uh, and one of the ways you talk about it, you you know this this future tech computer interfaces that you know it, it it bugs me all all computer interfaces in movies are graphical yet no one ever uses a mouse because it's more dramatic to hear clack 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 um but like the, the in terms of the features that the electronics bring it's it's not like that's old tech to us now it's just it's you know we don't have it in our homes but it is in buildings that we go into on on a regular basis so it's funny today it just kind of plays at, oh it's like a professional building it just doesn't have that future sheen on it now that it did hmm. that it did back then so it helps it just in the most minute way possible feel contemporary <laughs> exactly yeah i i was going to say um you know, we, you and I have been talking about alignment a lot in in this trips. So John McClane, I think definitely chaotic good, yeah. right? <laughs> and I think there's a lot of cop movies in the '80s where, you know, oh, typically I'm going to be lawful good, mm-hmm. but guys, you got to understand that when you know lives are on the line, I'm trying to save people's lives. 
I got to be chaotic. So break down the uh, like Dungeons and Dragons alignment ID yeah, idea. So, so it's like a it's it's like a nine square uh, uh, continuum. So there's evil to good and chaotic to lawful, and so, there's neutral in the middle. So on a like a compass, like a uh, a square, a four square, um, on the left side would be good, right side would be evil, and bottom would be. Chaotic at the bottom, lawful at the top. I gotcha. Yeah. And so everyone kind of fits somewhere on that spectrum, uh, on that graph of, yeah, he's just really far left and really far to the top. He's like uh, chaotic good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense because whenever you talk about chaotic good or chaotic evil, even chaotic neutral, there's like a hell-bent version of that. Like, I'm going to do it at any means necessary. And for John, it meant blowing up a building. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like, you know, Batman is lawful good. He won't kill you. He'll tie you up and hand you over to the police. John McClane is killing bad guys, blowing up buildings, anything he can to to basically fix this problem. That's chaotic as, as they say here in New Zealand. That's awesome. <laughs> so McTiernan also directed The Hunt for Red October. And it's funny, the the lead character in Hunt for Red October, what's his name? Jack Ryan. Jack Ryan. We got another action movie with a Jack in it. He is really, really good at – because in an action movie, you want to get to the action. So he's really good at economically uh, showing instead of telling exposition. Uh, they, he At the beginning of the movie, they did this great thing where they set up that John has a wife and things aren't going great, but we don't meet her. And then we meet her, but we don't know it's her. And the way we finally learn that it's her is you, you know, someone walks past a photograph and there's John with Holly in the photograph and she slams it down and she hasn't had to say anything and she hasn't had to tell somebody, oh, things aren't going so great with my husband. Uh, you know, we, we know it. we get a whole bunch of stuff out of that, out of the way for free there. One, one thing I noticed, you know, earlier I was talking about, uh, you know, the increased role of uh, uh, women in the workplace. She's super important to her family. She's she's raising the kids. She's feeding them and stuff like that. And I noticed that in uh, in one of the establishing shots in her office, uh, you know, they, they're putting the credits over the action. And every time they can, they put a credit over her face and let the men in the scene not have credits over them. Oh, really? I'm kind of like, man, so 80s. (laughs) That's hilarious. I also like, by the way, there are credits for the first nine minutes of this movie. Yeah. (laughs) The first at least nine minutes, they're they're continually credits. I'm like, when are the credits going to be over? Like, I think they do that to make the movie feel shorter because it's, what, two hours and 12 minutes? Right. And so yeah, the really, longer you can really delay long. the beginning, so to speak, then the shorter it'll end up feeling. Because if you do all the credits in the first 30 seconds and then it's like, oh, man, when is this movie going to end? You know, but if you can just kind of delay that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, that's the only yeah. explanation I could have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there's there's another thing McTiernan does well in action scenes. So he there's one scene where he cheats a little to show how smart McLean is. So uh, the bad guy comes out of the elevator and we know that McLean is behind these pallets here because we've, we've just seen him. We just established that he's there. We just established that the elevator door is opening over there and the bad guy scans the room and sees pallets and he's like, Oh, he's got to be there. And then when he goes there, there's nothing there. And John's behind him. And it's a, <laughs> it's a really cool little economical ways that man, John, 
he's got a, a luck of minus 100 to you know, make it an RPG reference again. Uh, but he's really, really clever. And he, he you know, he's got 100 intelligence, but minus 100 luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I will say it's a, definitely an awesome Christmas movie. Yeah. I'll give you that. I, I, still, I, I still don't think I can put it over the Grinch, but it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely something I want to watch next Christmas for sure. Again. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't start watching this for Christmas until like about two years ago, and people started talking about, oh, it's the greatest Christmas movie ever. And I, I'm like Utah. I hadn't seen it for like 20 years, and I had even forgotten that it took place at Christmas. And then, uh, you know, Heather and I broke it out for Christmas a couple of years ago. And like, Holy crap, this is going in the Christmas rotation. Yeah, absolutely. So. <laughs> I wonder, so I'm sure, you know, if we dive further, further in, whenever whenever Hans is trying to hang on for dear life, he's holding on to Holly's watch. And I feel like there's a Father Time reference in there somehow. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what else makes uh, Hans Gruber such a great bad guy i'm canadian so i always refer to americans in the you know in the third person uh but i i feel very american i've lived there for <laughs> a lot of my life he he really plays into the idea of europeans looking down on americans uh, that line where he's like just another american who saw too many movies as a kid another orphan of a bankrupt culture you know rambo cowboys and when mclean goes Oh, I was you know fond of Roy Rogers myself. <laughs> Yippie Kaye, motherfucker! Like the way that whole iconic Yippie Kaye thing comes comes about is so great, and you're so on his side after that. Like he just knocked him down yeah. ten pegs. It's just it's just fantastic. he's like, yeah, I'm not gonna let you uh, look down on me. I'm gonna own it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. you can try. You're not yeah. gonna get to me. Yeah. The last note that I made about uh, McTiernan, you know, there's this story that I don't know if it's true or not about the Hitchcock shot where Gruber is hanging off the building and when he when he finally gives. So the story is that they were like, OK, Alan, we're going to count from five and then we're going to let you go. And they went five, yeah. four, three, two and let him go on two so <laughs> that that reaction on his face because you know Rickman would have delivered, but getting that honest little bit, just oh. <laughs> oh. and I love that whole scene playing out in slow motion. Like they yeah. really do a great job of combining that with the sound, the audio. I don't remember if the audio slows down or not. I don't in my head it doesn't, but it adds this kind of surreal quality to everything that's happening because it is a obviously a surreal situation. Of I won, I won. Oh crap! I'm about to not only lose. I'm about to lose everything, and my whole goal right now is in crisis. The whole, yeah. the one thing I'm here for is about to uh, be taken from me, and I'm not going to let that happen. So just allowing that to stretch out, and you see John and Holly together working to uh, right this situation yeah. feels just the perfect culmination of uh, we're succeeding together now. Yeah, the audience get deserves getting to enjoy that moment where this arrogance – yeah. that Hans has brought to this whole situation. It's like, I cannot believe I'm losing like that. Yeah, yeah I'm losing and I'm going to die in a really bad way right now. <laughs> That's so satisfying. And they made that, by the way, they made that shot the last shot of the movie, like that they actually shot because they knew it would piss Alan off. Oh, oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so is and what actual? else? Another way they pissed him off is they did it a, couple, a few times and they, they, 
they kept the first one that they did. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like the first. Yeah. 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 There's a bunch of like, so in doing a bunch of research for this, there's a, like a, a bunch of awesome other little, like in the, when he falls in the, in the elevator shaft, the gun fail, the gun thing that he, that he sets up when he goes back into the elevator shaft and he, and it breaks and he misses the thing in the script. He wasn't supposed to miss, but the stunt guy, and they didn't, and yeah, they didn't want to waste the footage, and so they just made it look like it was it was what was supposed to happen. They made it look like he just caught the second one down. That's was, amazing. Yeah. It's awesome, God. right? Yeah. You know, and, and there were other things that they did, too. It just made me really appreciate the way that they made movies back when they used – I mean, they use film now, I know, still um, for a lot of f- movies and stuff. But, but their budgets are so huge now you just buy another role, you know, like it's, it's like not that big of a deal. But back then it was like, you know, you had smaller budgets. So like the building was the 20th century Fox building and Mm -hmm. they had to apologize a lot for the people that were working beneath them for all the gunfire (laughs) and, and things like the explosion at the end of the movie, when the, when the building blows up, uh, it took them six months to get 20th century Fox to allow them to do that. It was like a big, and, and uh but they finally allowed him to do that so these little things and then things like uh oh one of the best things that i loved the scene where he's where bruce is under the table and he blows that guy away with so they get to make it even way, more i could edit that to, in the best way possible when bruce is don't under you the do table. <laughs> don't you do it well under the table and blows okay <laughs> Oh, <laughs> we're doing Die Hard, not any other kind of hard. Um, Tiernan gave him extra loud blanks to make it that much more uh, aggressive of a moment, and it it caused serious hearing damage in Bruce Willis's ears, like in real life, Holy because they were extra. They were like twice as loud as normal blanks. Yeah. Holy crap! Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Man. That is crazy. Hey, and I had a question for you. So I, I noticed a lot. Uh, at first, I thought, oh, whenever they're outside, you know, you could put different uh, effects filters over a lens so you can get star. And here, like every light outside has a rainbow, an elliptical so, rainbow halo around it. And then I realized they're doing it inside, too. So I was like, is, it doesn't even seem motivated. It was just like a style. Yeah, I wouldn't. I didn't. Yeah, same here. I felt like oh, we're just adding all this visual interest and in, to make it a spectacle. But one of the cool things is some movies today will still do that um, because what what we've done in more modern lenses and maybe this was still happening back then is we put these coatings on the front of the lens in order to remove flaring, and so you can still get that that look by removing certain coatings off a lens to get that rainbow look. And certain films will still do that intentionally for, oh, we're going to use this lens uh, for this one specific scene. So like uh, in a recent movie, what's that Bradley Cooper movie uh, where he's singing uh, Star is Born? Like they do that in that film where they'll just remove some of the uh, coatings of the lens in order to get a very specific rainbow flare that's very round and it's just incredibly beautiful and interesting. But you don't always want that or else you might be uh, what you call – uh, glossing, I don't know, glossing the, the lens or adding all this glare onto the lens and what, because glare might look pretty whenever you get those flares, 
But what's actually happening is you're reducing the contrast of your image by splashing light all across it. And so whenever you see those big matte boxes on the front of a camera, those things that have those little barn doors flaps at the top and bottom, that's called a matte box. And the reason you put those things on a, in front of a lens is in order to keep unwanted light from hitting the lens and reducing the contrast of your image. Um, and that way you're getting just what you want in the in the lens and you know all the light that you just want and it's going to give you a much better image to play with in post but if you know what you're doing like jj abrams or <laughs> mctiernan clearly then you can get a very specific look and it'll add you know a lot of style to it yeah uh, yeah i was wondering about that J abrams new trek you know it's got flares i i just thought they would remove the matte box and just use a regular lens but do you, is there a specific lens you would use to get that blue kind of yeah sometimes i mean certain flares will tend to create a certain kind of feel and emotion and idea in the audience members so like those horizontal flares tend to feel more futuristic and science fictiony um and so for die hard specifically right you want more rounded things because this isn't necessarily I mean, there's still some of these horizontal things, but you're mixing it up so that you don't feel too much of one thing. And that kind of adds to the spectacle. But there's other cheaper ways. I mean, a lot of those things are done with anamorphic lenses, those lenses that uh, capture more on the sides and then squeeze it down into your into your, your, your sensor or your film strip. And then in post, you stretch it back out and it adds all these interesting visual bokehs, the little blurry lights and images in the background that's out of focus. And, but you can do that with anamorphic lenses, but you can also do that with little cheap, cheap tricks like fishing line. Oh, if you just add a strip of fishing line across your lens, then it's out of focus. You're not going to be able to see it, but it's going to uh, splash the lens and create this uh, horizontal flare on there. Oh, no way. It's weird, but it works. Uh, it's a little poor man. Uh, I just and learned it. something. Yeah. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. <laughs> nice. So all that said, I'm, I know I have other thoughts and we'll wrap in like, you know, a minute and then I'm going to be like, oh, wait, what about this? <laughs> but all that said, uh, Todd, what would you give this? What would, how would you rate it? Three out of ten. <laughs> One. Sorry, I was I was muted because the kids are screaming. Uh, no, you know when I came in to this episode, I was going to give it like a, a solid six, six and a half. Understandable. But now, I, I mean, honestly, after hearing your arguments, I think I'm going to have to give it a, 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 an eight and a half, maybe even a nine. Wow. Honestly, nice. like you, for whatever reason, I don't. You just really convinced me. I, I think. I think, you know, I went into it like I'm just not the biggest fan of, of 80s music, movies. I just really am not. I just it's really hard for me to to put myself back in that era. I mean, 70s, I'm fine. 60s, I'm fine. 90s, I'm fine. But just 80s just rubbed me the wrong way. And so I just went into it not, you know, super excited. Uh, and I think that carried through. But hearing the explanations, I kind of want to even go back and watch it again just to, you know, see if I can spot that those those things and, and to see if, if I can if it feels a little bit different. So, yeah, I would I'll give it a solid eight and a half. Nice. So there's a, a friend of mine who uh, he's not really a movie guy, but uh, he watched a making of documentary about Die Hard uh, a few years ago. And he he was like, I am so blown away by how much careful attention was they put into setting all this stuff up. He, he didn't have the words for it, 
but he was like to me it's just like a dumb fun action movie and he's like i can't believe the filmmakers went to all these links and i think i think a lot of what is covered in the documentary they would you know they would have touched on some of the stuff that we've touched on how much care and attention it takes to make you just be able to sit back and relax and enjoy a big dumb popcorn movie which is mm-hmm. at the end of the day this is a popcorn film uh so yeah it it, it was kind of cool to see him come to that realization of how how much effort even just a simple film and how much care to care and attention and how much art is required to really make it accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What would you, how would you rate this? Yeah, I'm, I'm like eight and a half, eight and a half, nine. It's so enjoyable. It's Bruce Willis in his, uh, smarmy, hilarious eighties prime. Uh, <laughs> Alan Rickman with that friggin' hilarious, accent to his oh it's it's got and and it's funny i didn't appreciate it as a christmas movie as much until 20 minutes ago when you went through that i'm like holy crap you added the cherry on top man holy crap (laughs) the star on top of the tree i think west convinced us both how awesome awesomely christmassy this movie was no really super christmassy and so i'm sure it'll be no mystery like for me this is a 10 not just because it's a great good action movie fine you know you could probably watch this one time be yeah that was a good action movie but contextually when this came out this became the prototype action film for i would say almost every action film after it everyone's chasing die hard ever since die hard like there are very few pure action popcorn movies that aren't trying to steal a bit of the magic from die hard and even movies before this or after this uh in this era are are great in their own right but i don't think any of them figured out the special sauce because even though this is an action film, it still takes us time. It's two hours and 12 minutes of earned emotional investment and wows. And they really figured out the way to make you ride this wave and care about everybody. It, it's perfect. I think it's the perfect movie, especially given the context of when it came out. So yeah, this is a easy 10 for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to make one, uh, a couple of visual effects, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. uh, points. So, you know, the Nakatomi Plaza was, was a, a miniature or a, mm-hmm. a bigature. Cause it was, uh, I, I think the actual model was about 12 feet tall or something like That's that. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And so it's really smart. Let's set it at night. Because selling explosions in the daytime is hard now with computers, yeah. uh, you know. So back then, it was great to set it at night. And I remember, so I was speaking with uh, our our friend Simon, who's an amazing cinematographer who uh, did cinematography for Mortal Engines, and he was telling me about how tough it was for Weta Workshop to get those shots of the miniatures for the new Blade Runner for Blade Runner twenty forty nine. And uh, he said it was a, a Canon 1D, and you have to open the aperture all the way so that you don't have uh, – so that you have as deep depth of field as possible. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, you've got to throw so much friggin' light at it. Yeah. And if you can get all that in there and the atmosphere and the camera movement right and the right shutter speed, uh, you can really sell the immensity of a set of buildings even though they're, they're super small. Uh, and I thought they did a they did a great job with eighties tech of making the the establishing shots of Nakatomi Plaza look like it's sitting on the Avenue of the Stars in L.A. Yeah. It, it was really convincing, and I was uh, I, I just noticed that uh, this last yeah, it's watch. always tricky shooting models because to your point, like if you don't close down the aperture and as tiny as it possibly can, then you're going to get too much depth, and it's going to not look like 
uh, a real life building because if you take a camera, you're any camera, and it doesn't matter if you open the aperture up to like an f1, which means that the the hole that's letting in the light in the front of the lens is as wide open as it can possibly be, then you could do that and try to shoot a mountain or a, a, a cityscape. Everything's still going to be in focus because of the relationship from the camera to those buildings. They're so far away that everything, even if the the distance between those two objects could be a mile uh, from each other, but because they're both so far away from you, they're both still going to be in the exact same uh, focal field. And so in order to replicate that, whenever you have... If you're going to shoot like your dinnerware or a glass on a table and you put your camera right up on it, well, everything behind it, if you pull focus on that cup that's, you know, 12 inches away from your, your camera, everything behind it's going to be out of focus, even if you have a, a you know, much smaller uh, aperture. And so in order to fake that, you close it down and create as much, like you said, as much humanly uh, depth of uh, field as possible so that everything is in depth. And now everything looks bigger because of that and especially if you can get the camera even closer mm-hmm. then it really exaggerates everything yeah and and i think i said you open the aperture up i mean oh sure you, you yeah, close yeah. it all down so i apologize no every one of my episodes i'm like flooding all that <laughs> stuff every time yeah yeah just yesterday we were at the uh Tongariro national park here in new zealand where you can see mount rupehu and mount naruhoe which was uh, mount doom and i'm trying to take pictures of my wife and i want her in focus and naruhoe in focus as well and it's not it's not easy especially if you want to punch in to exaggerate how big the mountain is in the background Yeah, because you need so much light you have to understand the less light you're letting in means the more light you need on your subject in order to uh, expose it properly for the camera yeah and so to create those effects of the building exploding like really really small aperture tons and tons of light to get it exactly the way you want and then of course really really big explosions to make those pop out <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt and then the uh, the other things were there's an establishing that same establishing shot where they put the credit over uh, Holly's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, the skyline outside the window is so unconvincing. <laughs> it's, it's you can you can just tell it's a matte painting with some uh, yeah oh light, yeah, yeah. Light oh, yeah it's awful yeah, it's bad it's awful and there's there's one composite job where I think it's you know John McClane's looking down the elevator shaft when the explosion happens and he had no idea how big the explosion would be what the fuck yeah and the the composite you know there's a little bit of Mm-hmm. Of you know, because that would have been an optical composite uh, yeah. back then, and you can you can kind of tell, but which is hard to do. I mean, yeah. granted, what they're doing in their time is freaking amazing. Because whenever you say optical uh, composite, I think you're basically saying that you shoot your plate like you shoot down the elevator shaft, and then on a separate shot, you film an explosion, and now you have to basically cut out the explosion, place it on top of the shaft. And then refilm both of those things together. And you got to make that look like it really is a real thing. <laughs> like, yeah. Because, well, this is 1988, so maybe... Maybe some digital yeah. compositing. I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah. I know Star Wars had to do like some r- pretty old school versions of it, but... Yeah. Good God, man. Yeah. Hats off. Regardless, it looks terrible, but I love it nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love the effort, no matter yeah. what. Oh, yeah. because Good hustle out there, guys. Yeah. <laughs> for, for everything that kind of didn't look great, there yeah. were 10 things that they just crushed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to that point, like, I also love the colors seem to go from drab to more and more saturated and 
it seems like they slowly introduce more colors throughout the film. So on the beginning, it's very golden. Then as the sun sets, everything comes a little more black and gold. And then as threats and violence start to introduce, you get a little more reds and they just slowly increase more, more and more color until the end of the film is like, you're kind of being bathed in all these dramatic, uh, contrasty colors. I love it. Yep. Yeah. Um, so all that said, what are you going to recommend this week? Toddles. So, I'm going to recommend uh, 12 Monkeys. And the reason I'm going to recommend that is because uh, apparently um, Bruce Willis got that role because of uh, his scene that he did where he was pulling the glass out of his feet. Uh, they were, all those lines were, um, were improv and they weren't wow. part of the script. And so because of his delivery, Terry Gillum decided – that he wanted to cast him in 12 monkeys. I did not know that. that and plus amazing. I just love 12 monkeys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's fun and crazy. Yeah. Fantastic. What do you yeah. got, Joe? I, I got to go hunt for red October. It's uh, another John nice. Tiernan. It's such it, it again, it's a super tight story. Everything makes sense. It flows really well. There's no boring exposition, super great payoff moments in that film. And an adaptation. I love that movie. And, yeah. And an adaptation. Yeah. Tom Clancy, which is crazy. I had no idea. Die Hard was based on some bookie thing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that until Todd said it at the beginning of this episode. Word paper uh, objects. I didn't know it until I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> And so I actually researched for this. <laughs> Imagine that. What else you got? You got any other cool research notes? Uh, no, it's pretty much pretty burned, much it. I'm I'm sure the there's something else I can't remember right now. I I gave you all my notes. It's all up on screen. Oh, nice. Yeah, got it. I actually have notes. <laughs> well, because you know, like. Like, I know that this is – I want to respect this movie because everyone loves it. And there's a reason when a movie is this quote-unquote timeless, and it is, even if I don't get it, like I want to understand why it is and to understand why I don't get it. Because usually when I don't get something that's this ingrained into society, it's because I'm just behind on the t- and I need to kind of get with it. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that's why. I, I, think I'm, I think I'm good. Nice. Cool. So my, notes, yeah. my reco for the week is – the last Boy Scout. Um, if you like Die Hard, I feel like yeah. you'll enjoy The Last Boy Scout. It's Bruce Willis being, you know, insane. And it also teams him back up with, I think Joel Silver produced Die Hard. And I know he produced, uh, I'm pretty sure he produced The Last Boy Scout as well. So explosions, one liners, Bruce Willis uh, smirking into the camera. It's everything you really want out of an <laughs> 80s action film. The nice. Last Boy Scout. Awesome. So tune in next week for when we do Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, specifically. It's going to be fun. We have Joe here with us who works for the the company who made Lord of the Rings or produced uh, all the visual effects for them, which is Weta Digital. And so it'll be fun. And he's a huge uh, Lord of the Rings honk. So we're going to get all kinds of interesting tidbits out of that. It basically is going to be the Joe House show <laughs> next week. Because I'm going to add nothing to that that he could not. I don't think either of us yeah. will. We're just going to sit back and like let him speak for an hour. <laughs> don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Leave us a note. If there's a movie you'd like us to talk about, let us know. This movie was uh, suggested by me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 
And so thanks. Shout out You're to the Wes. Pestle's number one fan. <laughs> Shout out to Wes. <laughs> and if you want to comment on this episode and say why we are right or wrong about this being not only the best action movie of all time, but also the best Christmas movie of all time, you can chime in at the pestlepodcast.com slash diehard. And Todd will leave us with a quote of the day. This one is by Alan Rickman. Actors are agents of change. A piece of theater, a piece of music, or a book can make a difference. It can change the world. Beautiful, man. Wow. I love that. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Joe, about Alan Rickman's attitude and just ability to bring anything to a film. He is, you can't replace an Alan Rickman. God, I mean, he was a great, great villain and I loved all those little cartoons about Rickman. Uh, Whenever he passed, there was such a a heartbreak and an homage, you know, to, to what he brought to, to our lives. But I think he's absolutely right. I mean, we are agents of change. We're presenting. If books are the reason we are where we are today, film and acting is an extension of that what we do as actors and all three of us are actors and what we do is an extension of words and words are the most powerful thing i think humanity has ever created and the ability to track change and to track progress and to suggest new ideas of living and new ideas of how we treat each other actors are presenting that to the world and making you emotionally engage with that and even though you know we're doing we're talking about a silly action movie I mean, this is still something that can make a difference in someone's life. You have no idea how many people might, I don't know, be looking forward to something so much. They're like, you know what? I will get up today and I will go, you know, join society because there's a new season of Game of Thrones coming out. And I want to <laughs> I want to participate in that yes. be around for yes. that. And I want to be able to engage with that and not only just being alive until then, but also, you know, have money and have friends and participate with culture, actors and acting and being a part of art. It's everything. Yeah. And we were talking about Roger Ebert yesterday, who wrote a great essay about how film is a really unique cerebral and visceral way for you to live a life through someone else's experience. Uh, there's, uh, you know, books, books allow us to do that. Obviously, uh, uh, films and television, you know, add the visual element to it. And there's a there's a huge amount of empathy, I think, that you find in people who really enjoy film and theater. And uh, there's something amazing about, you know, especially about, you know, uh, actors that we know transforming themselves into what you see on screen so, so much so that you don't even see the, the actor that you know anymore. You see the character. And that's like, it's just an amazing ability that, that some people have to be able to tap into something bigger than themselves as, a, as, as one single human being and, and to become something else. It's just awesome. Anyway, yeah, great quote. But like, like what I said, if you have anything to suggest, please suggest it to us uh, at thepestlepodcast.com slash diehard. Subscribe, review us on iTunes. We do this because we love doing it, but also we, we want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and Joe, as always, thank you for joining us again. I can't wait to hear your input next week when we do Lord of the Rings, Worship of the Ring. And until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. And I'm Joe. Go watch the movies. Mm-hmm.